to begin with this morning, I want to share with you how much of the map is red. And in order to understand the situation that we're in today, as it affects our own community right here, where we live, it's important that we understand, or at least get some sort of a basic grasp of the total picture. And that's what I would like to attempt to do this morning, to be able to give you a grasp of the total picture, something of a background. I want you to begin by noticing the type of projection that we have on this map. Most of our maps in America have the Americas, North, Central, and South America, right in the middle of the map, which means, of course, that you have to split Asia right about uh, through the central part of Mongolia, just about here, so that you get this then forms the right-hand margin of your map, and this forms the left-hand margin of your map. Well, you can see immediately that you right away lose the impact of how vast the Soviet Union really is. And it's important for us to know and to understand how vast the Soviet Union really is. It covers one-sixth of the Earth's surface. The Soviet Union is larger than the face of the moon that we see on a clear night, a full moon. So when you stop to realize that we're talking about a vast, vast area, how many, uh, you know, we have a big country here in America. We have four time zones uh, here in America. You know how many time zones there are in the Soviet Union? Who can venture a guess? You're right. There are 11 time zones in the Soviet Union. And there is not one single place anywhere in all of those time zones where you can buy a Bible. There is not one place where you can legally send your children to Sunday school. There is not one place anywhere within all this vast area where you can tune in and get um, a gospel program emanating from a station within the Soviet Union. Of course, the gospel can be heard in the Soviet Union, but the people have to depend upon their shortwave, and they pull up their little aerials, and they listen in by means of shortwave to stations like uh, FEBC from the Philippines, or uh, a newer one now in Korea, or from um, Elwa in uh, Liberia, or from Monte Carlo in Monaco here, Transworld Radio broadcasting from one of their six powerful stations around the world, or from HCJB in Quito, Ecuador. I was just in Quito just a few weeks ago, and they were broadcasting the gospel into the Soviet Union, uh, doing a tremendous job. We visited, we've had the privilege of visiting many of these radio stations around the world, and we've also traveled extensively in the communist world, in the uh, Iron Curtain countries, and have listened to those broadcasts coming in from the outside. But there is nowhere within the Soviet Union that you can hear a program emanating from within this area, because, of course, it's forbidden. Now, this is something of what we're up against. So, to fill you in on some background, let's go back in time, just over 50 years ago, to October and November 1928. The place is Moscow. The occasion is the Sixth Communist Party Congress held in Moscow in 1928. 
It was 11 years after the revolution began, the Bolshevik Revolution, which was the starting point for our discussion this morning. Communism was already active before then. We can even trace it back to being active in the Civil War here in the United States, would you believe? But uh, for our purposes this morning, we're going to start at 1928 and uh, trace it from there because that is where it first began to really look internationally and concern itself with world domination. At that party congress, they had in those 11 years since they launched it in 1917, they had managed to swallow up the whole of Russia. They had now the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Now, they've added some since then to this landmass. In the early 1940s, they added the Baltic states of Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. They just swallowed them up. In much the same way as last month, they swallowed up Afghanistan, which probably will become the 16th um, republic within the uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. But here is this vast area of over 122 different countries and, and even more languages than that. So it's a diverse uh, ethnic, uh, religious, and cultural conglomerate or Russian empire is what it really is. Now, the curious thing is they call us the imperialists, which is patently ridiculous. Uh, they are the imperialists. If ever there was an opportunity for any nation to become imperialistic, it was the opportunity of the United States in 1945. We emerged from the Second World War with the most powerful army, navy, and air force that had ever been assembled by any nation anywhere on the face of the earth. Also, we were the only members of the nuclear club. We were the exclusive sole members of the nuclear club. So if there had ever been an opportunity for any nation or race of people to expand their influence and truly become imperialistic, well, the ball would have been in our court and it would have been our opportunity at that time. But we are not by nature an imperialistic people, but the Russians are. Ever since the days of the Tsars, they have longed for warm water ports along the Indian Ocean or the Mediterranean. Uh, ever since the days of the Tsars, they've sought to create a buffer zone to keep the Napoleons and the Hitlers from coming into Mother Russia. And so they were able to secure those at the end of the Second World War by occupying all of these East European states where my wife and I worked for some 17 or 18 years in these satellite countries of Eastern Europe. And uh, they've been able to secure those into an area known, uh, or as Winston Churchill said, behind the Iron Curtain. That was a phrase that he coined in 1946 when he was speaking in Fulton, Missouri. He said, across Europe, from Settine in the north to Sofia in the south, an Iron Curtain has descended across Europe. And so, as only Winston Churchill can intone those words, he coined a new phrase, the Iron Curtain. So keep it in your mind. Maybe you would just like to see what the Iron Curtain looks like. These nations, beginning with Poland in the north, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, Romania, Yugoslavia, and Bulgaria, those are the eastern satellite Iron Curtain countries that we've just mentioned. Not to forget little Albania, which uh, really isn't too important, except that it's a little enclave there on the Adriatic, carved out of, uh, of Yugoslavia somehow. So they've created this buffer zone. Now, at this party congress, the Sixth Communist Party Congress in 1928, 
They divided the world into three columns, and they titled one column the capitalist world. The next column they entitled the, no, the, the colonial world, and the other column they entitled the non-colonial world. And then they listed underneath those captions each of the countries in the world that would have fit under one of those categories. And by the way, every country in the world would have been included under one of those categories with the possible exception of Egypt in those days. So uh, it was easy for them to classify the countries. Then having classified the various countries across the world, they set up under three different headings and types of government, they set about to discover the inherent weaknesses of those various forms of government. And then since 1928, they have been working uh, energetically and enthusiastically to exploit those inherent weaknesses in each of the systems. Now, of course, our system is the capitalist system, the free enterprise system, and we have freedom as a, as a very basis, freedom of movement, freedom of speech, all of the other wonderful freedoms that we have. So they have decided that therein lies one of our greatest weaknesses. If we have the freedom, if I can stand up and preach the gospel, or if I can uh, uh, propagate my political views, or whatever I can as, as, a, as an individual American citizen, I have the freedom to do those things, then people who would hold opposite views, who were atheistic, or who were communist, or any other type of view, they also could enjoy the same freedoms that we have. And so they're using our freedoms to destroy and take away the freedoms that have made this country great. Now, this is a very uh, delicate line that we must walk here. We cannot deny those people their freedoms because we would do it to our own harm if we cut off the freedom of, of those people to be able to propagate their views. Then someone could turn around and say, well, you do not have the freedom to propagate your view. So I would not like to see the, the uh, cessation of the propagation of those views. However, I feel that since we do have freedom, we must use the freedom that we have to take a positive stand for what we believe and that as Christians we need to come out of the woodwork and let our light shine for Jesus Christ so that the world will know where we stand. We can no longer afford the luxury of being the silent majority. I was in Washington last week and talked with um, um, Jerry Falwell who is... Uh, leading up a group called the Moral Majority, doing a wonderful work. And I would like to see that this, or like to think that this would be uh, furthered, uh, this type of work. So having divided the world into these three categories, and set about to decide how they could infiltrate and exploit those inherent weaknesses, then they devised a strategy whereby they could accomplish their goal. And their strategy was in three phases. It was as follows. Asia first. After that, neutralize Europe, isolate America, and both will fall like ripe plums into our hand. Asia first. Now, they had in mind, of course, China because that's where the great bulk of the population of Asia live. Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, those are mopping up operations. That's an, almost an afterthought, as it were. China was the principal target. One out of every four people living on the face of the earth are Chinese. 
time. My wife and I have three daughters. We stopped with three because we heard that every fourth baby in the world was Chinese. <laughs> well, the Chinese are a wonderful people. They're industrious. They're, uh, they're extremely good business people. But they have been taken over by a godless atheistic system. And you will remember, if you think back in, in history, you'll remember that by 1950, uh, Mao Zedong had managed to consolidate his gains in China, and China fell into the communist camp by 1950, about the time my wife and I went to Europe. We spent over 22 years in Europe. And during that 22-year period, period of time, we saw Europe neutralized, as it were, because that was their next objective, to neutralize Europe. And simultaneously, along with neutralizing Europe, the idea was to isolate America. And I want to talk for just a few moments about how they accomplished those ends. You see, Europe has always been Western-oriented. Where did they look for help when the uh, torch of freedom was flickering and about to go out in 1914 and again in 1939 and 40? They looked to America. Europe has always been Western-oriented. So if you can neutralize, looking at it from the Kremlin's point of view, if you can neutralize Europe, you take out a, a vast power block, an economic block that will not be against you any longer, but will be neutral and can ultimately be Finlandized, which is a, a word that they're using as far as Finland because Finland tried neutrality and now they've more or less uh, been um, uh, absorbed, not into the Soviet Union. They are still neutral, but they really don't have any uh, political will of their own in Finland. So Europe was being neutralized all during the period of time that we lived there. And we could see it happening. And the acid test of the neutralization of Europe came in October and November 1973 during what is commonly known as the Yom Kippur War. You remember how that very quickly and swiftly on the most holy day in the Israeli calendar, the Syrians attacked over the Golan Heights and down the Golan Heights, and then simultaneously Egypt attacked from uh, the southwestern corner there and plunged the Middle East into a war again. Now, Israel is really set up to fight a quick, sharp, short war. The six-day type war is uh, Israel's style. Israel is not geared for fighting a long, drawn-out war of attrition. And so as the war drew on, because Israel was not being supplied with new material, as the war drew on, Israel was almost defeated at that particular time. Now, the reason Israel could not be supplied was because the only, or at least the most logical place for the United States to resupply Israel was from our NATO bases in Western Europe. That would be the quickest and most logical place for us to rush military aid into Israel. But we were not able to do that because our the host countries, which have control over their own airspace, logically, they forbid us to airlift material out to resupply Israel. Why? Because they were afraid of an Arab oil embargo, which came about anyway. And we had speed limits of uh, 75 miles an hour imposed on us. Uh, or 80 miles in some places uh, on us in Europe, where before there'd been no speed limits in Europe, and we had uh, gas rationing uh, for a period of time until they uh, resolved that situation. However, that was the acid test of the neutralization of Europe. 
Now, during the same period of time, America was being isolated. Here was a country that had gone overseas to fight in Europe and in the Far East to keep the flame of freedom burning brightly in the far corners of the world, only to be isolated after the war and made out to be the bad guys by very persistent and effective communist propaganda. We were made to look like the bad guys somehow. In spite of the fact that we'd gone in and rebuilt the the cities in, in Europe that had been destroyed during the war, instead of just letting them get on uh, with their own uh, and by their own means, we went in with martial aid and helped them to rebuild their cities. And I remember, and my wife will remember, uh, the first time we went to Europe, Europe was virtually still smoldering as from the war. We can remember driving across Berlin and seeing just. 15 miles that we drove across Berlin, driving around the rubble and the debris in the streets, and not a single building was standing that hadn't been hit by incendiary bombs or gutted or something. And yet today, Berlin is one of the most beautiful cities in the world because it's all brand new, and they've been it's been completely rebuilt. I'm speaking now, of course, of West Berlin. But America was isolated. Now, the one of the ways in which we've been isolated is because they have been using our freedoms. And they decided that in attacking America, of course they could not attack America with arms or with weapons or with airplanes or anything like that. They would have to attack America in another way. They would have to infiltrate our country. It's important for you to know this, particularly in the class that you're studying, because this is what is, it's this area right here that will be expanded uh, as as we move into this series that Harriet will be teaching uh, and as we move into the series. But there were five basic areas that needed to be infiltrated, and these were the areas in which uh, uh, controlled the thoughts or had influence over other people. The first and basic area for them to influence was the educational uh, area. So they began to infiltrate the educational institutions, as far back as 1928 and 1929. So for the last 50 years, they have been actively and aggressively infiltrating our educational institutions. The second area of infiltration was in the news media. It's very important to control the news media. And when I say control the news media, I don't, I don't mean just by censorship, because we would go up in arms if, uh, if the word censorship came into the uh, vocabulary of our uh, news media or anything like that. But in, 19, in the 1960s, during the Camelot years, when uh, President Kennedy gave an executive order stating that the government, under certain circumstances uh, relating to national security, had the right to manage the news. Well, uh, the word manage didn't have as sharp a cutting edge as the word censorship, and so those were the Camelot years, and we went back to sleep, and we didn't notice it. But that executive order has never been rescinded, and so the government is still managing the news. In other words, they are feeding us exactly what they want us to know. So the news media has effectively been infiltrated. The third area is the entertainment industry. You don't really expect to have propaganda coming at you from the silver screen in your cinemas or over the TV 
or something like that, particularly in, uh, in some of the plays that we see or the programs that we follow or so forth. But if you can infiltrate the entertainment industry and by bringing in certain things that will reduce the moral standard of this country by making it appear to be okay and all right, such as adultery and uh, all sorts of uh, uh, profanity, all sorts of uh, uh, different things that just come in so subtly, and it may, it's made to look like the normal thing that happens. Now, you're going to be getting into this in real depth later on, and you'll be having tools put into your hands to know how to counteract this. But just to show you where we are now, the entertainment industry has been infiltrated by the Marxist. And please remember, it was Karl Marx, no, I'm sorry, it was Lenin who said that the soundest strategy in war is to postpone final operations until the moral degeneration of the enemy renders the mortal blow both possible and easy. The moral degeneration. And so, consequently, drugs were made available in great quantities to our boys in Vietnam. And it was the natural thing, really, to turn them off because they were very discouraged because they realized they were trying to fight an enemy that with one hand tied behind them. They were trying to uh, accomplish a goal. They were being asked to pay the supreme or run the risk of paying the supreme sacrifice and laying down their life when they knew very well that the commander-in-chief and that the uh, people back in Washington were not prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice of winning the war, which we could easily have done. Uh, if, if we had gone in to do it, we could quite easily have done it. So the boys were demoralized, and they were prime targets for drugs that were cheap and easily available. And so the idea was to wipe out psychologically an entire generation of the finest young men on the face of God's earth. So this was part of it. So the, the entertainment industry was another area. The fourth area is the, uh, the churches. Here, of course, in churches, you have areas where people are influenced. They come to church on Sunday and they are influenced, and so they must infiltrate the churches. So the seminars, seminaries were in, uh, infiltrated, and many of the denominational seminaries across our country that once really stood for the Word of God and for righteousness and believed the Bible to be the inspired Word of God and upheld Christian principles, you wouldn't believe what is being taught in some of the seminaries across the country, how liberalism and modernism and higher criticism have come in, how the faith in the Bible has been eroded in uh, seminaries right across our country. Well, it's due to the infiltration and the successful penetration of this area by agents of Marxism and those that are on, the, uh, on that side of the spectrum. And the final area was the political arena. And after all, this would be the final area because... Uh, you don't really need to infiltrate the political arena. It will infiltrate itself automatically if you have uh, raised people uh, through the educational system, if you have influenced them through the news media and through the entertainment industry and through the churches. You've been hammering this over to them year after year after year after year. Why then, eventually, they begin to put people into the political sphere who are going to reflect their point of view. And that is exactly what we have now in Washington with many of our legislators whom we have put in there are there because of the extreme liberal ideas and influence of the people. So America has been, has been isolated to a large extent. Uh, my wife and I were living in Europe 
during the Watergate period. Now, I'll use this as an illustration. We were living in Europe during that period, and we saw what the Russians were doing. The Russians were systematically taking over every port in the Indian Ocean. And all we were hearing was Watergate. And our newspapers and our radios told us all the news all the time. And in point of fact, we were getting almost no news any time. All we were getting was Watergate. We were being drowned in Watergate. And finally, we didn't want to hear the news anymore. So we switched off the news. Oh, groan, here's some more uh, that they've dug up about Watergate. But during that 18-month period of time, the Russians systematically took over every major port from Chittagong all the way around to Barbara on the Somali coast. So they are in a position now in the Indian Ocean to defend their interests there. Now, this is very important to see how they are working. Now, of course, there was, uh, back in November, uh, the so-called students took over the uh, American embassy in Iran. Very strong documentation is at hand. I was just reading some of it yesterday, which uh, indicates that those so-called students, many of them, are hardcore KGB Russian agents because their photographs are, are easily identifiable and are on record in the CIA files and so forth, and many of them have been recognized and identified there as KGB agents in among the students. So uh, there is a lot behind what is going on in Iran that the Russians are, are into. When they watched for six weeks and saw that the United States was going to do nothing about it, and they realized that America had no intention of coming in to, uh, to free her own people, even though uh, coming on to the embassy compound in Tehran was an act of war, because embassy territory in any country is sovereign territory of that particular nation. So our nation, sovereign U.S. territory, was invaded when the students, so-called, came into the embassy there in Iran. But the Russians watched, and when we did nothing for six weeks then they concluded that if we would not come in and take out our own people and, and rescue them, then we certainly would not come into Afghanistan if they came in there. And so while we were unwrapping presents on Christmas Day, they were pouring troops across the border. Now those troops rolled into the country in trucks, and those trucks were manufactured in the Kama River Truck Factory which was built by American technology. The Kama River Truck Factory is the largest factory on, on, in the world, over 16 square miles under one roof. Uh, I've seen aerial photographs of it from uh, satellites and so forth, and I was the house guest of a general in Washington this past week while I was attending the conference, and he had been, uh, he had had two tours of duty in the Pentagon, and he studied very carefully the aerial photographs of this particular factory, and he shared with me a lot of information about it. They say, how is it that we built the Kama River truck factory there for the Soviets to build their trucks, which the assembly lines, incidentally, could quite easily be converted to producing tanks, I might add. How is it? Well, it goes back to 1972. If you remember, it was an election year. And it was very important for um, the president to be reelected. And the best thing that could possibly happen to assure his reelection would be to finish the war in Vietnam. 
And so it was decided years before that the war would be finished in 1972 because that would be a good election campaign issue. However, it was to the Russians' advantage to keep us occupied in Vietnam because it was American blood and treasure that was going down the drain and the Vietnam War was dividing the American people psychologically. So in order to wind down the war in Vietnam, we had to have Russia's cooperation. Because if Russia had continued to supply material to North Vietnam and continued to supply encouragement to them, then they would have pushed us right down to the, to the ocean and it would have been a Dunkirk and a disaster instead of a peace with honor, as Mr. Kissinger told us and won the Nobel Peace Prize for it. So early in 72, Mr. Kissinger was dispatched to Moscow to initiate talks that would result in what has commonly come to be known as détente. Détente, which is a French word meaning the relaxation of tensions, and it replaces the old word used back in the 30s and the 40s of appeasement. Uh, it really means what's mine is mine and what's yours is negotiable, because that is the Russian point of view. The Russians agreed to Mr. Kissinger's uh, proposal to wind down the war, but on their terms. And their terms were that the United States would repay Russia for all of the arms and ammunition they had sent to North Vietnam. And so the American taxpayer winds up paying for both sides of the Vietnam War. So building the Kama River truck plant, sending them IBM and data processing material and computers with which they have increased the accuracy of the intercontinental ballistic missiles, all of these things, and not to mention the wheat that we have sent them, are all part and parcel of repaying our war debt to the Russians. This is the end of side one. Please advance the tape to the end and turn over for side two. We'll see you on the other side.